From Wall Street to Main Street, there are stories to be told. Where knowledge learned on the street is as powerful as knowledge learned on the streets. This is the Financial Recon Podcast, where we introduce you to the people, places, and things that have helped shape our environment and will help shape yours. Welcome to the conversation. Lately, we've all seen the headlines and heard the rhetoric. Company X pays no income taxes. It's bound to set anyone off on a tirade. And as politicians squabble as to how to best address this issue, one has to wonder, is perception a reality? In this episode of Financial Recon, I'm joined by Professor Scott Dyrang of the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University, who provides a fascinating explanation of how to interpret financial statements versus tax returns and what really is going on with these corporations. Scott, thanks a lot for joining me on the Financial Recon Podcast. I think this is a very timely discussion we're about to have, considering uh, the sharks in Washington are circling, looking for revenue. So thanks a lot for being on the show. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Right out of the gate, let's just jump into what's the difference between accrual and cash-based accounting, because that I think is going to set a good basis for our listeners for the rest of our discussion here. Yeah, that's a, it's a good place to start because it <laughs> turns out to matter a lot when we start thinking about how we tax corporations. Right. So cash accounting is kind of like what most of us would do in our personal finances. We want to know how much we have, And so we look at the bank account, how much goes in and how much goes out. And it's all about how much cash is in the bank. An accrual-based system is a little different. What we do with an accrual-based system is we record revenue when it's earned, not when the cash hits the bank account. And we record expenses when the economic costs are incurred, not when the cash is paid. So an example might be something like this. I hire somebody to work for my company and they work for me every day for 30 days, but I don't pay them every day for 30 days. I only pay them one time at the end of the month. If we were in an accounting system, which recorded income every day, I would actually record compensation expense each day because I incurred the expense, even though I didn't make the payment. Now with a big company, they don't record the expense every day. They would do it at the end of the month, but there's all kinds of things that happen at a company where a cost has been incurred, but the payment doesn't happen now. It happens later. And so for, for accrual accounting, we record the revenues when they're earned and we record the expenses when they are incurred, but we don't worry so much about paying when the payment is made. As in contrast, cash accounting all happens. It doesn't matter when it's incurred. It just matters when the cash is received. So that's like the big difference. And so for the listeners out there, I know Warren Buffett's really big into cash-based accounting because accrual, as I'm understanding you, if I bought an airplane from you and you sign the contract, and if I'm in an accrual-based system, I'm going to recognize that revenue today when we sign the contract. But in reality, you haven't made a payment yet. That's yeah. So there there's, it depends as, okay, let me back up just a little bit. There are (laughs) 
the more complicated the transaction, the more complicated the rules become. Right. And there are kind of, you have to meet certain thresholds to determine whether the revenue, for example, has been earned. You have to earn it. So just because I signed a contract, that might not mean revenue. I might need to actually deliver the product to you. Mm-hmm. But so you have the product, you have the airplane. So now maybe I recognize the revenue, but you haven't yet paid me. And so that's the big difference. So Warren Buffett is probably saying, hey, um, I don't, I, I want to find businesses that are actually generating cash. I like right. cash. And right. a lot of people kind of believe in cash-based investing strategies. And and so, you know, with the accrual versus cash base, it kind of leads into, you know, your bread and butter around corporate taxation. That's that's where Washington's focused right now is, is that they got laser focus on corporations are not paying their fair share of taxes and how do we get more out of them and this and that. And can you kind of elaborate on what's going on with that whole area of yeah. the tax world? Yeah, there's so there's much going on. And I, I spent a lot of my life studying that probably more of my life than I should admit. <laughs> uh, it's a sad life when what you do is you study taxes, but hey, it's, it's all good. Um, so that maybe I should just give you a, a few kind of overall statistics, maybe. So the, yeah, sure. tip, the typical company, publicly traded company, um, pays something like mm, about 20% of its pre-tax income in taxes. Now, that's a lot more than zero. And if you were simply reading headlines in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, you might leave with the impression that big companies don't pay any taxes, but many of them do. Um, There are, however, some prominent examples of very large companies who make and report to shareholders billions of dollars of income, but pay very low taxes, sometimes even no taxes at all. And this this creates a lot of public outrage. And some of that might be justified because in some cases, the way the companies are avoiding taxes is they're using very clever strategic tax planning techniques that allow them to shift their income away from a country like the United States and recognize it in a country like, say, the Cayman Islands, where the tax rate is zero. And it's legal, but it's pushing the boundaries of what some might consider to be ethical. There are other situations where companies simply follow all of the rules. And because of the mismatch between cash flows and accruals, and there's even a second mismatch, which is the mismatch between accruals that are required for financial accounting, which gets reported to shareholders and tax accounting, which gets reported to the internal revenue service. (laughs) Those mismatches sometimes result in situations where a company can report high income to uh, shareholders and like no income to the IRS. And so they don't pay tax at all. And in many cases, it's not because the company did anything um, scandalous or aggressive or anything like that. They simply followed the rules, but it creates these discrepancies. Interesting. So with this, like Amazon, like let's just talk about them, right? That's, that's the big one in the headlines. 
what are they doing that allows them to create that tax situation that everybody views as exceptionally favorable? Yeah, Amazon's a great example. And actually, Amazon is an example of a company that's not doing anything uh, too aggressive. They're okay. following the rules. So Amazon, like maybe two years ago, reported like 11 billion of income to shareholders and paid no federal tax. Um, so how did that happen? In Amazon's case, I know that case because I've looked into it. Um, Amazon pays many of their employees. These are mostly not their warehouse workers, but their, you know, white collar workers. They pay many of them in part with restricted stock. And restricted stock is essentially a promise to give the employee a share of stock or many shares of stock, depending on how much they're given. And the employee receives this promise, but they don't actually receive the shares until the shares vest after a waiting period. And the waiting period might be something like five years. And so what happens is um, let's suppose that you sign up to work at Amazon and Amazon says, okay, you get five shares of restricted stock on the day that they promise you those shares. Amazon will record an accrual for compensation expense, even though they haven't paid any cash. And they're going to say, we just promised to give Mike some shares. And those shares are worth X dollars. And the dollars that they will record as compensation expense will be the value of the shares on the day that they gave you the shares. Now, what they'll probably do is they'll probably say something like this. Mike has to work here for five years for those shares to vest. So what we'll really do is we'll record compensation expense one fifth each year for five years and spread out that expense over the vesting period. Well, that's fine. That reduces Amazon's income, just like you would expect. If you're paying somebody something, it lowers your income and there you go. But the government looks at that and they say, if we let Amazon record compensation expense, they haven't actually given Mike anything. So we would be giving them a tax deduction on a promise to pay when maybe they won't even pay because what if Mike leaves Amazon before the five years is up? We, they won't ever even have to give him the shares. So why would we want to give Amazon a deduction when they may never even end up paying Mike anything? So the tax authority says, well, you don't, get to take a tax deduction when you record those expenses. Instead, you have to wait until the shares vest and you actually give the shares to Mike. So five years goes by and now what's going to happen is um, after five years, I'm going to give you the shares. Well, the tax authorities say you get a deduction based on the value of the shares on the day you give them to Mike. Well, if you're, if you have followed Amazon, you know that over the course of five years in the most recent five years, the share price (laughs) is like quadrupled. Right. Right. So when I promised you the shares, they might've been worth $500 a share. And when you receive the shares, they were worth $2,000 a share. So the, financial accounting expense was $500 a share and the tax deduction was 
$2,000 a share. And it turned out that Amazon had enough shares vest in 2018 that they were able to take an $11 billion deduction. Wow. But they didn't have to record that for financial accounting purposes because they had already recorded it over the previous five years. And they had recorded a lower amount because the shares were worth less when they were promised than when they were actually granted. There's a discrepancy between the two numbers. That's really interesting. It's almost like a, uh, a personal benefits depreciation type thing, you know? Yeah. And here's the other thing that I think people forget. It seems almost like too good to be true, but the government is not really losing out here. (laughs) That 11 billion in shares was given to all of these employees and it for them counts as $11 billion in income. And they have to pay tax on all of that income at the, at the highest personal income tax rate, not at the favorable capital gains rate or something else they're paying tax. So the government did collect tax, probably something like 30% of that 11 billion. It just came from the employees and not from Amazon. Yeah. So it moves it down the food chain. So the, the regular person, but I mean, you know, with a substantial growth in the stock, I still don't think people would be complaining. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I think the employees are happy and I think Amazon is happy and the shareholders of Amazon seem to be happy. What really happens here is it's, it's not clear that Amazon should have reported 11 billion in income maybe the financial accounting rules should be altered a little bit to help um, recognize the economic expense of giving away a share that was worth 2000 a share, not 500 a share, something like that. And actually the financial accounting standards board has debated this issue repeatedly over the years. And there are some people on the financial accounting standards board, which have argued that the accounting rules aren't perfectly um, set up to deal with, stock-based compensation, but that's the world we live in. The interesting thing that happens from a political point of view, though, if you are campaigning on um, a platform that promotes the idea that big companies and rich individuals are not paying their fair share, then a headline that suggests Amazon earned 11 billion and paid no tax is a very powerful talking point. And um, it can rally the support of your voters and of other politicians and so forth. Right. To the extent that many of the current politicians have labeled a new proposed tax, the Amazon tax, to prevent them from being able to do something like report 11 billion of income and pay no tax. So is, is, is the Amazon tax what has led to this recent agreement with the the set of global minimum tax amongst 125 countries? Well, interestingly enough, they're kind of separate things because Amazon is not avoiding the tax by shifting their income to Cayman Islands. They're just using stock-based compensation. The Amazon tax is there are some politicians who have proposed creating like an alternative minimum tax on Mm -hmm. financial accounting income. So you report your tax income to the IRS and you pay tax. But if that tax was too low, you pay an additional tax on whatever the income was that you reported to your shareholders. 
Um, that's, I think, in the latest version of the legislation I've seen, that has been tabled. But it was a pretty big talking point for Elizabeth Warren and uh, Joe Biden during the campaign. And I think it's been in versions of what the House and the Senate have proposed. But I think the latest things I've seen, it's off the table. You're asking now about this global minimum tax, which is um, a different issue. And the issue there is you have a company like, for example, maybe Google. And what Google will do is they'll sell their intellectual property, Mm -hmm. you know, the the search algorithm, (laughs) the copyright of the search algorithm to a subsidiary, which Google owns in Ireland. And that Irish subsidiary will then license that technology to its a subsidiary beneath it, which is in maybe France or wherever else. And when someone searches for something on Google France and clicks on an ad, Google France recognizes revenue, but then Google France will pay a royalty to Google Ireland and they'll set that royalty at just the right price. So there's no income in France and all the income is in Ireland. And then through some other kind of clever maneuvering the Google can get the income out of Ireland and maybe put it in Cayman Islands or wherever. And I'm not saying Google does that specifically, but that's like the general complaint. And so because there are countries like Ireland, Cayman Islands, Bermuda, Jersey, Isle of Man, you know, pick your favorite, right? Many Island nations, they tend to be islands, they tend to be small <laughs> and they have low tax rates because those countries um, have those tax rates and the big countries are not cooperating. Um, a company can use the laws in the different countries around the world to move their income perfectly legally to a small country where there's no income tax. And the only way that people have been able to think to stop this is by convincing a whole bunch of countries to cooperate and agree that if they have a company in their country that hasn't paid a high enough tax rate, that the home country will just collect it. And then through some kind of set of treaties or something, decide how to divvy up the collected tax among the countries that are party to this treaty. That's what's happening with the global minimum tax. So like a revenue sharing agreement? Something like a revenue sharing agreement. <laughs> and I can't imagine how that could possibly go wrong. I mean, no. you know, we, we can't even agree in our own country what we should do with taxation. It seems really hard to imagine the United States agreeing with France and Germany and England and some other countries that might not be so powerful. Um, you know, pick your favorite. And how do we share that revenue? Seems really complicated to me. It's government math. I government mean, math. <laughs> As listeners are here and like it, it's just, you know, how does, how do you have one book and then you have, you know, you, you report one set of numbers and then you're taxed on a different set that, I mean, it's that most people, when they hear that, they are stunned. Like, why, why would we have two different earnings numbers. Why do we have two different accounting systems? But it turns out there's a really good reason for that. And here's what the reason is. You know this because you're in this world. When we look at a financial statement of a company, an investor uses that information to make decisions with 
you know, how to most efficiently deploy their scarce resources, right? Mm-hmm. I, I am not a rich person. So when I have some money to invest, I can't just invest in every company. I have to choose carefully which ones to invest in. And how do I make that decision? I look at the financial information that the company has disclosed and financial reporting standards are designed to provide me with accurate, comparable, reliable information for making that decision. The government in creating the accounting rules has a completely different set of objectives. They're not trying to calculate an income number that is uh, helpful for an investor. They're trying to calculate an income number, which number one will help the government collect revenue. (laughs) Number two will potentially encourage or discourage certain types of behavior. So for example, I might give you a deal on your taxes. So if you decide to put a solar panel on the top of your building, right? what am I doing by giving you a deduction? I'm letting you lower your income. That's what I'm doing. So that's the second objective, encourage or discourage certain types of behavior. And a third objective with taxation is we want to redistribute wealth. Now, some politicians think that's more important than others, and there's a lots of controversy surrounding that topic. Mm-hmm. But those three objectives, redistribution of wealth, encouraging and discouraging of certain behaviors, and collection of revenue, require a number which is like vastly different from the number that would be most useful to investors. And as a consequence, Every country that I'm aware of that's developed in any sort of a way has two different accounting systems, one for tax and one for investors. And just like from taking it down to the personal level, I think would we agree that way a person can see this difference in taxation versus a financial statements is like with if you had like a rental property where banks look at depreciation in one manner if you go to get a loan and the taxing authorities look at it as another. Would would that be a good way to kind of compare it? That's a great example. The bank is going to say, what's your cash flow? Because Mm -hmm. what the bank cares about is, can I get my loan, my money back? Right. And in the worst case scenario, if I have to foreclose, I'm going to take over the property and I'm going to sell the property. And as we all know, like houses don't really depreciate in the same way that say your computer does, right? In many cases, they appreciate. (laughs) The government is going to say, we want to encourage investment and we want to encourage development and so forth. So we're going to allow you to deduct from your taxes a certain amount of depreciation for the building that you're renting as though the building were becoming less and less valuable. And they do that because they're trying to encourage a certain behavior. The behavior is investment. Mm -hmm. And we, at a personal level, we don't mind that. If I own a rental, I'm totally happy to take those deductions. And the bank is totally happy to ignore those deductions and (laughs) think of it as not depreciating. And that's exactly why they're trying to accomplish different things. And, 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 you know, just in this discussion, something that popped to my mind was a story about a couple years ago with like Target and Target, you know, if you've been in the Target, you've seen the store redesign and everything. And they came out and I remember this because I was in spring training and the stock got crushed that day and people were calling me (laughs) and because they came out and they said, we're taking this one-time charge 
of this much money to renovate all the stories. And I want to say it was a couple billion. And initially wall street's like freaking out about it. But I was like, all they're doing is they're just accelerating their pain into one specific quarter or year. And consequently they're reinvesting. So that's how we view it in the, the, you know, there's the one set of, like you said, financial um, books, and then there's taxing authority. And so it's, it's promoting reinvestment into the businesses. Well, and an interesting thing about a case like that is the government will probably not let you take the deduction all up front, like you took the expense for financial accounting. So you're okay. saying, let's, let's accelerate the pain all today. And the government's going to say, well, we're going to make sure you've actually incurred those costs and paid for them and so forth before you get the deduction. Interesting. As a general rule, the government will say stuff like this. Um, You don't get to take a deduction until you've actually paid, which kind of makes sense. They don't want to give deductions for promises to pay. They want you to actually pay. (laughs) And they also, in many cases, won't, they will, they will require you to pay tax when you receive revenue, even if you haven't earned it. So sometimes a company will receive cash before it delivers its product or its service. And that's called unearned revenue. Mm-hmm. And you don't record it as revenue for to investors because you haven't done the work yet. But sometimes the government will say, oh, actually, you have to pay us tax on that now because you might go spend it and then you won't have it to pay us. So the government is kind of trying to collect the revenue when the revenue is available and they're trying to not give deductions until the payments have been made. And in that sense, sometimes tax accounting is closer to cash accounting, but then they make it complicated by saying, well, but we also want to encourage behavior. So we're going to give you special types of expenses like extra depreciation deductions, which we just talked about. Yeah, yeah. And that's not designed to collect revenue. That's designed to encourage behavior. Right. So sometimes the different objectives of the very government conflict and they can't agree. So do you, you know, if you were a betting man, do you think this infrastructure bill at some point has some special depreciation rules thrown into the mix or, you know, accelerated expensing? Yeah, I don't know the details, but here's what I do know from past legislative actions. Mm -hmm. There are always some special deals thrown in. Right. Because what you're trying to do is get the different senators and representatives to sign on. And sometimes the holdouts will say something like this. I'm not going to do this unless you do something for X company in my district. And this results in what are sometimes called rifle shot provisions, a provision, a tax benefit, which is targeted at one specific company. So there's, I don't remember the exact language, but in there is, um, in, I think it was in the 1986 tax reform. This is a long time ago, but there was a provision which applied to any company in the automobile industry founded in Delaware in 19... 19- 13 or something. In other words, it applied only to GM, but it didn't say (laughs) GM. It said, you know, any automobile company (laughs) in Delaware and whatever. And the 
you know, idea was that to get whoever was that representative on board, they needed to make a special deal. So they made a special deal, threw it in the package. And I am certain that some of that is going on in this bill, but we don't know the details yet. And we may not until it's passed. And so speaking of like capital investments, I know you've done some uh, work around FedEx. Yeah. Um, Could you elaborate more on like their situation? Yeah, FedEx was, uh, there was a big article maybe in the New York Times, I want to say last year that had a similar headline to Amazon. Oh, FedEx didn't pay any tax and they reported a high amount of income in the billions of dollars. And uh, if you dig into their financial statements, the reason FedEx didn't pay any tax was because they purchased a bunch of new airplanes and they built some new buildings and they contributed to their pension plan. And they did all of this somewhat strategically so they could reduce their tax bill. So this was right around the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the Trump Tax Acts, which were in 2017. And if you contributed to your pension account before the end of the year, you could get a deduction at the tax rate that was higher, 35%. But if you contribute after, you get a deduction at 21%. So <laughs> anybody knows contribute before the end of the year. Like everybody knows that. Right, right. right. Um, but then after the, um, the act was passed, in the new tax law, you can accelerate depreciation on many purchases so much that you get to take all of the depreciation in one year. In other words, you get to expense your purchases. And so if you are FedEx and you buy a lot of airplanes, you can take the entire value of those airplanes and use them to offset your taxes in that year. And so that that's basically what happened. They had huge depreciation deductions, which caused them to not pay taxes at all in, I think, 2018. But what people forget is if you take all of the deduction in 2018, in 2019, right. 2020, you don't have any deductions. <laughs> And so you're going to pay more tax in 2019 and 2020. What is that bonus depreciation, right? It's bonus depreciation. And and what it really is, it's a time value of money benefit. I'm better off paying tomorrow than I am today because I can invest my money and I can grow at 10% or something. But the actual savings is relatively small because I'm just paying it later instead of paying it now. You know, FedEx is just jogged a couple things with that example. One, with the pension. I think that's actually a good use of encouraging a behavior because, right, pensions are going the way of the dinosaur. You encourage, you promote a behavior to increase funding the pensions, which I think is good, which removes stress off of the pension benefit guarantee corp. And plus, if pensions were invested in the market for the last couple of years. I mean, you've seen, they've been doing from a time value, they've been doing quite all right. So I think that that's actually a good example of using tax policy to promote a good behavior. At least that's my opinion. I mean, I I would totally agree with you. I think if you look at many things, um, even in just the FedEx, FedEx example, giving deductions for contributions to pension and plans seems like a great thing to do. Giving deductions for purchasing airplanes and building buildings and, and, you know, investing in your company is probably also a good thing to do because what goes along with that hiring and, 
you know, tons of people involved in the construction of those airplanes, tons of people involved in the construction of those buildings. That's how the economy ticks. And so Same that's premises built are uh, the house housing deduction. Absolutely. Yeah. There's tons and tons of examples. I mean, we, we are totally on board with giving companies uh, extra special treatment, tax credits and so forth when they invest in sustainable energy. Why? Mm -hmm. Because as a society, we think that's a good thing to do. Now, if you're purely trying to create an accounting system, which captures income, it's a terrible idea. But if you're trying to create an accounting system, which encourages companies to do certain things, it's a great idea. And from a tax point of view, that's often what we're trying to achieve. The thing that I also sparks, you know, or in my mind when we're discussing this is you got to think with the supply chain issues and the fact that railroads have to fund their own infrastructure, man, the logistics companies are going to be lined up to get Congress. I, I mean, I've already seen the, the promotions of support uh, investments in rail and this, this and that. You, you got to think they're going to be lining up in the halls of Washington right now trying to push as much money into their infrastructure and these types of things to get that, those behaviors. I'm, I'm, I'm certain that's the case. So the argument would be pretty simple. If the government's going to build roads, which benefit the trucking companies, why doesn't the government build all the rails to benefit the railroad companies and so forth? Right. And and so we could kind of go on and on about all of the different ways in which the government could use the tax system right. to promote or discourage certain types of behavior. But then we reach a sort of conundrum, which is now what's happening is the government is picking winners and losers. And that becomes extremely <laughs> controversial. <laughs> and that's why people no. can't agree when we're sitting up in Washington, DC. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and, and that's where the, you know, everybody's trying to kind of blend the two systems and that's where it's kind of like, we have, to, it seems like we're going to have to pick, pick what's going to be more important. Are we going to worry about revenue or are we going to be worried about, you know, driving behaviors and, and we haven't even talked about redistribution of income and wealth, which, yeah. of course, there's a whole nother thing to think about along those lines. But if you just think about like going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, why are there two systems? Imagine if Congress actually passed a law that said we will have an alternative minimum tax on financial accounting. OK, mm -hmm. it could be totally it could be done. So if you're Amazon and you didn't pay any tax because your tax income was low, we'll just impose a 10% tax on your financial accounting income. How long would it take before the elected representatives that we have that pass legislation that affects tax law, how long would it be before they start passing legislation to change financial accounting rules so that they also meet the objectives that the Congress people have in mind? And then what would happen is you wouldn't have a good system to inform investors. You would have another system which is muddled by the objectives of the political system. And that's why it's important that the Financial Accounting Standards Board, who set the accounting standards for financial reporting, stays politically independent because we don't want those objectives uh, kind of 
sneaking into financial right. reports. It's a lot to think about, Scott. I mean, it, we could, I know we could go on for hours and hours about this stuff and, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to reconvene another time to uh, dive more into buybacks and dividends because I know <laughs> we could do a whole episode just on that and that third rail of uh, corporate finance and accounting. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, that's another is- issue, which is fascinating because when you think about buybacks and dividends, now you're getting into the objective of taxation, which really has to do with income and wealth redistribution. When you hear Bernie Sanders say buybacks are evil, I don't think he's really all that concerned about how we finance our corporations. I think he is concerned that there's a chance that a buyback in some way enriches the already wealthy executives of a company. And so we should make them illegal because we want the tax system to promote fairness and equity and not promote inequality. And we could discuss and debate whether or not there's a factual basis to those types of arguments and rhetoric. But what you're observing when you see something like share repurchases um, coming under scrutiny by politicians, you're observing the manifestation of the third objective, which is to redistribute wealth or income. That's why we'll have to save this for another time. I hope you could join us uh, yeah, sure. again, because there's a lot of thoughts that I have and I, I would love to just bounce them off you on this subject, because like I said, you go, you start going down. It's, it's really a fascinating argument and all sides have great insights on this and I appreciate yours. So thanks a lot for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us today. To continue the conversation, visit us at our blog, financial-recon.com. Appearances do not constitute endorsement of flagship wealth management group, LPL Financial, or any other entity discussed in this program. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor. Member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. This information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax or legal advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific situation with a qualified tax or legal advisor. Professor Scott Dyering and the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Flagship Wealth Management Group.